this is the uh, fifth part of a series that we're doing on Philippians. The book of Philippians found in the Bible is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. And that's how it gets its name, Philippians. Um, this is the part of the, of the uh, uh, large group or the worship service where we study God's word and we ask ourselves, what does this say for me today? Um, so that might be not, maybe that's not something you're familiar with. If you're not a Christian or you're not real sure if you're a Christian, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to believe the Bible to read it and to learn things from it. So I'll just say I'm happy that you're here. If nothing else, you'll learn a little bit about what Christians believe the Bible says for them. Um, so did you know that over half of motor vehicle accidents happen within five miles of the home of the driver? Over half of them within five miles of the home of the driver. It's kind of funny to think that if you were to go on a long-distance car trip, the most dangerous time, statistically, would be when you were closest to home, coming back or, or leaving. Um, so there is this kind of overconfidence that comes from being very familiar with something. Oftentimes, I'm like right when I'm leaving my development, I'm fiddling with my phone or the radio, or I'm trying to get you know, trying to get the music just right, or I'm thinking about maybe what am I going to eat for dinner when I get home, and then bam, that's when it happens. That's when an accident comes. We start going from focusing on the road, and then in a moment's notice, our focus changes, and we don't even recognize it, and we open ourselves up to danger. All of us have these moments in our life of overconfidence. When we feel too familiar, we feel so familiar that we think we can't possibly fail. And we open ourselves up to exactly the kind of danger that we thought that we were past. Uh, today, we're going to read God's Word, and we're going to consider what does God say about being overly familiar, overconfident in our, in our life with Him. Um, so if you have your Bibles, would you please open up to Philippians chapter 3? We're going to be reading from verses 10 through chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, would you bless this reading of your word? God, help, uh, help our eyes to see what you have for us. Would you help us to hear your voice in your word here? Spirit, would you fill us and convict us of sin and make us to be more like Jesus? Amen. So we, we actually took a few weeks off from our series on Philippians. And I was the last person to speak. It was about three weeks ago. And in the, uh, in the last series, in the last talk on Philippians, we, we looked at the first part of chapter 3. Paul, in chapter 3, was talking about his past life, about the things that he considered to be gain and the things that he considered to be loss. Everything that he considered to be a gain for him became a loss. Why? Because he found the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. It was so valuable that he saw the things that he had cherished and treasured, and he saw them to be a loss in comparison. And we learned that our tendency is to put confidence in the flesh, is to put confidence in those things that we achieve for ourselves, and we think that they're a gain. These things, they promise to be gains to us, but in reality, they prove to be losses because they fall flat. It's only when we are able to count all that we consider to be gain as loss that we receive the true treasure of knowing Jesus, the surpassing worth of Jesus and his righteousness. So Paul is encouraging them. He's saying, look, I found the surpassing treasure. I found the thing that's worth having. 
and it's worth forsaking everything else to get it. But he's anticipating a misunderstanding that might come up in this. So in the section we're going to read, he's, he's anticipating what, what are they going to misunderstand when they hear me say that? And he's going to describe some pitfalls for the church in Philippi that might cause them to not finish the race, to not achieve the goal. Um, so that's where we're going to pick up today. Uh, uh, if you would find uh, verse 10, we're going to read to 4 verse 1, and then we'll start thinking, what are these pitfalls that Paul's describing? Verse 10, it says this. Uh, by the way, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. I know most of you are probably reading on your phone, so if you want to read, if you want to read the same translation, it goes to CSB, Christian Standard Bible. Otherwise, uh, it's very similar to ESV. But just for sake of clarity, you could follow along if you care to. Verse 10, it says, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Here's verse 12. Not that I've already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example that you have in us. For I have often told you, and now I say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform us. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself for one. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Okay. A uh, lot, lot there to unpack. Um, so, the very first pitfall that Paul points out here, right in the beginning, he, the error of thinking, I've already arrived. That's the very first thing he wants to say is, look, I have not already reached the goal, or am already perfect. Paul is concerned that the readers may misunderstand him to mean that since he has suffered the loss of all things, and that he has gained Christ as Savior, like he says in the beginning of chapter 3, that he must now be living his life on the mountaintop. Like, like he's saying, since I've suffered the loss of all things and gained Christ, now there's no effort involved and I've reached the end and come just being like me. Uh, he's very concerned that they're going to think there's no effort involved anymore. In reality, the opposite is true. He says, I make every effort to take hold of my goal and I reach forward to what is ahead and I pursue it. His striving and effort towards the goal is fueled by two things. The first is his understanding that he has not yet reached the goal. And the second is his confidence that Christ has already taken hold of him and has promised him the goal or the prize. 
right? So his striving is not from a sense that I've reached the end already, but it's actually from a sense that I know I haven't, and I know that Christ has. So the, the paradox here is like, why should he strive and give effort towards a prize that, one, he knows he can't achieve, and two, has already been promised to him? The Christian life is full of paradoxes like this. Jesus says, you gain your life by losing your life, right? So how can you gain your life by losing it? Jesus says, the greatest in God's eyes are the ones who see themselves as the least. How can the greatest in God's eyes be the least? Achieving perfection is understanding more and more your sinfulness and your non-perfection and your need for Jesus. So some, somehow in God's eyes, being more perfect is about seeing that you're not perfect and that you need Jesus as your perfection. Maybe when you, when you first became a Christian, your view of your sinfulness was probably limited to maybe like one or maybe two particular areas of your life, things that maybe got the better of you and, and had broken you down finally to the point where you realized, I need God and I can't keep doing this. But in reality, like you had such a very limited view of your sinfulness at that point. As you grow as a Christian, as you become more mature, you begin to see, dang, I'm actually more simple than I thought I was. And, and actually, Jesus is, Jesus is greater than I thought he was because the cost that he paid was more than I was even aware when I first became a Christian. That's how the race, that's how the Christian life was designed to be lived. Paul says that the Christian life, it's like striving to run a race. It's like striving for a prize which has already been promised to you and which you can't achieve on your own. It's, it's those that think they have reached the end. It's those who say, I've, I've done it. I'm good. I'm on the mountaintop. Those are the ones that lose the race. It's a, it's a paradox. And it's just, um, you might be sitting here thinking, well, I know that I'm not perfect, and so this part might not be for me. And I mean, I understand the reality is if I just came up to any of you and I said, hey, do you think you're perfect? You probably, I know you would say, no, I'm not perfect. Um, so don't, don't let that make you think that you have reached it, right? Because just because you know that you're not perfect. Um, you, you might think that you're not perfect, and the reality is you're not, but you may not be taking sin seriously. Um, is this true of you? Do you find yourself justifying your sin? Do you find yourself explaining it or downplaying it? When you become aware of a sin, are you more prone to think, well, it's not that bad, or at least I didn't do this when I could have done this. Do you hide your sin? Are you, are you trying to cover your sin with moral actions? Maybe your, maybe your small group, your leadership, your servant team position. Do you think that doing that somehow balances the scales with your sin? Do you even find yourself thinking things like, I deserve this sin? Recently, we've had some giants in the faith who it's come out that They've had these serious moral failings in their life, and much of them, many of them were thinking, I deserve this, right? I, I, I get this because I, I serve God. You are not above that. It doesn't happen all at once. It happens bit by bit. You don't just get a serious moral failure, failure right off the bat. It happens from a thousand little decisions that lead into that, but all of it comes from the heart that says, I got this, and it won't happen to me because I got this. It's exactly that kind of attitude that leads to a serious moral failure. So the first pitfall is thinking, I've reached the goal, I got it, it's not for me. 
The second thing that Paul stipulates here, the second reason that we might not reach the ends, yeah, I can't lick my fingers. Come on now. All right, pitfall number two, losing focus on God and putting it on the world. When we take our focus off of God and instead we put it on earthly things. Uh, I'm looking at verse 18. He says that there are many who live as enemies of the cross. And his warning to the Philippians is pay careful attention of who you are imitating. Because these enemies of the cross, they seek to influence you. These are, not more, these are not neutral when it comes to the Philippians. Just because they're enemies of the cross doesn't mean that they're not your enemies too. They are seeking to influence them as well. Paul says uh, their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. He may be talking about idol worship, like sacrificing food to idols. He may be talking about religious dietary laws. I think he's making a play on words. He's, he's saying that to be an enemy of the cross, it means that you are ruled, your God is your appetites. The things that you crave, you deserve those things. Go after them. These enemies, they suggest that what you crave is what you should strive for. Their God is their stomach, their, their appetites and their cravings. Enemies of the cross, their glory is in their shame. The people who, um, the, the people who are enemies of the cross, they, they do more than just approve of evil. They do more than just do it. They revel in it. It's their glory. It's what, it's what they, they find significance and meaning in, is actually doing the things that God says are wrong. And as he's describing this, it, he says it brings them to tears. I've often told you, and I, and I now say with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross. I think that he's in tears because as he's warning the Philippians, he's, he, he knows that the end of this kind of life is destruction. And that these people are in the midst of the, of the Philippians and that they are seeking to influence them. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? What do you really gain if you get everything that the world wants to give you but you lose your soul doing it? When we take our focus off of God and onto the world, it opens us up to the destruction of sin. And the end of that is destruction Sin will always take you further than you want to go. It will take you, it will take more than you give it. And it will promise, it will, it will give you less than it promises. Sin promises satisfaction and glory that it can't deliver. And when we downplay our sin, and when we act like we're above it, like it won't happen to me, or when we take our mind off of Christ and we set it on earthly things, we open ourselves up to the danger of failing to reach the prize, failing to reach the goal that is the surpassing worth of Christ. The antidote to these two pitfalls is always in what Jesus has done for us. Um, so Paul tells us two main things about Jesus in this passage. The first is what he has done for us, and the second is what he will do for us. All right, so what has he done? First, Jesus has taken hold of us. Verse 12, it says, excuse me, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ. Paul's confidence, it goes back to these, this event in his life, whereas Jesus took hold of him on the road to Damascus. Like an event in history gives him confidence as he is striving to run the race today. It's that day on Damascus when Jesus called him out of his sin and made him his. 
He says, I, I make every effort because Christ has taken hold of me. In suffering, in prosperity, in whatever life will bring you, through the good and through the bad, we can continue to strive towards the upward calling of Christ because Jesus has endured the suffering and the shame and the dishonor. Even in death, Jesus has endured it in order to take hold of us and make us a citizen of heaven. Right? So in our suffering, we can continue to strive after Christ because he suffered first and took hold of us in his death. So what has Jesus done? He has taken hold of us. What, what will he do? Jesus will return, and he will give us the final glory that belongs to him. Uh, here's verse 20. It says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. By, uh, by the words that Paul is using, I think he's reminding the Philippians of two separate things. First is that um, as long as they're in these like humble, broken bodies that they find themselves in, they can be sure that they haven't reached the end. There is a sense where our physical bodies, our sore muscles, our aching bones, they can re it reminds us that things are not the way that they're intended to be. Right? There's like a, a very real connection there between like our humble, broken bodies and the humble spirit that we should have before God, that we haven't reached the end and that things are not the way that they're intended to be. Second, Paul is encouraging them to look forward to the day when Jesus will return and literally renew our bodies. When Jesus returns, what is humble and lowly in us will be made glorious. Remember the paradoxes that Jesus lays out? The last will be made first. The poor in spirit will be exalted. The pain, the sweat, the tears as we pursue the call of Christ, the toil and the struggle against our sin, it will be made worth it. That will be our glory. It will be what's humble in us that Jesus completes and gives us as his glory. I want to leave you with just a couple application points to help you answer the question. If this is true, if the Bible's true in what it's saying, then what does it mean for me today? Remember, uh, we can be over-familiar with things. Sometimes when we'll read a passage, we'll be on spiritual autopilot, especially if we're familiar with it, maybe we've heard it before, heard it growing up in church, and we'll just kind of put the pieces together and take it for granted. And, not, and like, yeah, I know what the application is, and so, you know, I, I know what this says. Well, we need, we need to always be taking the time to think, Where's the truth of this taking me? Right? The Bible, it, it wants to move you along a storyline. So the, the truth that it gives you, it's not just truth for you to know. It's truth for your life. So what, if this is true, then what does it mean for me today? The first thing I want you to see that because Jesus has taken hold of you, because Jesus has taken you and made you a citizen of heaven, our actions are shaped by what is true of heaven. Because Jesus has taken hold of us and made us citizens of heaven, our actions, they must be shaped by what is true of heaven. Citizenship. Uh, it, it's, a funny, it, it's funny that he, that he starts talking about citizenship here because it's a very prominent thing in the ancient world. Where are you a citizen of? Do you even have citizenship? And that's a defining characteristic of you. 
the uh, city-state of Philippi, actually, was a Roman colony. So many people in Philippi were Roman citizens. For the people living in Philippi, their Roman citizenship, it gave them a calling and a task for their life. Being a Roman colony didn't mean, great, let's leave Philippi and live in Rome. Right? It meant, let's bring Roman culture and influence here to Philippi. That was their duty and their task. Take what's true of Rome, make it true in Philippi. But being a citizen of heaven, it doesn't mean that we abandon our earthly home. It doesn't mean we look at this and we say, this is evil and icky and yucky, and because my muscles hurt, I need to like forget about it. Right? It means that our task is to make what is true of heaven more and more true of earth here today. And that's what we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. So whether it's our classrooms, our homes, our friendships, our relationships, in the voting booth, we live here with the responsibility to bring heaven to earth. Okay, So because Jesus has taken hold of us and he's making us citizens of heaven, what is true of heaven needs to be true of us and shape our lives. Number two, because Jesus will give us the glory that we deeply desire, the glory that we run after for other things, we can live in this world today without seeking glory from the things of the world. Because Jesus has given us his glory, we can live in the world without seeking what the world wants to give us for glory. Your life is a witness for God. When you wake up to when you, you know, go to bed in the evening, everything you do is a witness for what you think is true about God. Imagine, imagine what witness it would be to be an excellent student, to be a straight-A student, to be an excellent employee, but to find no glory in achievement. Imagine what that would say to your coworkers if you were just the best and, and, and the brightest, but that you didn't put your identity in that. What would that say about God to your employees? Imagine, imagine the, the witness that you could be as a loving friend or maybe one day a spouse, but that you don't idolize your friends or your spouse. What blessing could you be to your friends if you were loving and Christ-like but didn't ask them to be something for you that they can't be. You'd be such a blessing in your friend groups. Imagine what it would say to the world if you enjoyed all God's blessings, but you just insisted on not being controlled by them. Because Jesus promises this future day when we will have his glory, the glory that we desire, we can live today and not look for glory in the things of the world. I'm going to close in a second, but um, if anything I said tonight was confusing or you need clarification on it, I'll stick around here and, and I'd love to answer your questions or we could get coffee. I'll buy your coffee. And uh, I, I'd love to hear any feedback that you have. And um, if you tonight have not made the decision to make Jesus your treasure, to seek your glory from Jesus, don't leave here tonight without talking to somebody about that. Talk to the person that brought you. Talk to me or another staff member or someone on your serving team. Um, I'd be more than happy to, to talk with you about that and maybe even just share what do I find so, so amazing about God, about Jesus. I'm going to pray and then the band's going to come up. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word, for your word that corrects us, for your word that encourages us. It spurs us on. It makes us more like Jesus. Lord, I, I pray that we would see 
the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and that that would fuel our, our life here today. And we would see what it means to be a citizen of heaven and that that would be evident to our friends and that they would want that to be true of them as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and listening. If you want to find out more information on what you heard, you can check out our website at jmucrew.com.